You'll want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, where we'll be today. But before we start, for those of you following the news now know that we have two major wars going. The war in Ukraine continues well over a year now, and now there is a major conflict uh, in Israel, and uh, most recent reports were the, the casualties are in the thousands at this point. Uh, this war is one day old. And um, so I thought we'd just take a moment and uh, ask God to intervene and bring peace uh, to places where there are no peace. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look forward to that day when the swords are beaten into plowshares. Lord, we don't know all of the geopolitics involved with the ongoing conflict in Ukraine or this new war in Israel, but we know they affect the whole world. They affect our country. They affect all kinds of people, and we know there are many innocent people who have lost their lives, who have been injured and wounded, who are not combatants. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bring a swift resolution to both conflicts. Lord, we pray for all of the innocents that are there who can't escape. Lord, we pray that you would protect them. Lord, we don't always know why things happen the way they do, but we trust that you are still sovereign. And we ask that you would bring an end to wars. Lord, we pray that there would be a swift resolution and you would bring peace once again to lands that are in desperate need of peace. And we ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. They'll be near the end of your New Testament. If you've gotten to Hebrews, you've gone a little bit too far, go back to your left, and uh, you'll find First uh, and Second Timothy, and we're in chapter 6 today. I'll be reading uh, verses 3 to the end of the chapter. So listen carefully as this is God's Word. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue 
righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the end of Paul's first letter to Timothy to learn more about contentment, about the dangers of having a false security in money and material things, and the need for godliness in the face of false teaching. And Lord, this is a lot. Contentment is elusive. It doesn't just happen. And we don't know where to find it. And we know so few who have it. And so, Lord, once again, teach us what to do, teach us what to say, teach us what to believe, teach us how to live. Build our faith, draw us near, and help us learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through these words of the Apostle Paul this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, this is a hard passage for us right now. The overall theme of 1 Timothy 6 is contentment. And the key verse is verse 6, where it says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. But it's hard to talk about contentment right now. I mean, think about it. We have had a lot of loss in our church lately. A handful of families have lost parents and grandparents in the last few months. Those losses don't go away overnight. They last. And for some of you, they last for a long time. And a lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you can't talk about contentment at a time like this, when can you? We've had a number of serious health problems come up in the congregation in the last few months, and honestly, over the last several years. Multiple surgeries, cancers, COVID, cardiac issues, serious infections and illnesses, it's been a lot. And your physical health affects everything else. It's hard to get much done. It's hard to think clearly. It's hard to be happy when you're hurting. And a lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you can't talk about contentment at a time like this, when can you? The mental health crisis has exploded all over this country in the last four years. 
I heard on a podcast recently that back in 2019, 8% of all Americans claimed an anxiety disorder. So I looked that up online and on the Mayo Clinic website, I learned that anxiety disorders are a group of mental health conditions that cause excessive and persistent worry and fear about everyday situations. They can be triggered by life events, stress, trauma, medical conditions, or other factors. Well, that describes a lot of people. Maybe that's why the number of people who claim to suffer from an anxiety disorder has risen from 8% in 2019 to 27% today. That is 90 million Americans. That is a huge increase in four years. Now, the pandemic and political polarization and all the debates over race and sexuality have all been contributing factors. And our church hasn't been exempted from the affliction of anxiety disorders. A lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you can't talk about contentment at a time like this, when can you? Last week, we talked about honoring each other in the church as members of the family. If you remember, we read that we're to treat older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, and younger men as brothers. If you're in Christ, then you're a member of the family. But we all know it's all easier said than done. And that's because some of you, both young and old, are not getting along with your parents. Some of you are not getting along with your children. Some of you are estranged from other members of your family. Some of you are emotionally torn up because of that. And some of you have just said, good riddance, glad they're out of my life. But there isn't a person in this room whose relationships are all calm and easy. Relationships can be painful. They can be toxic. They can inflict all sorts of damage. And that kind of hurt can last a really long time. And a lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you can't talk about contentment at a time like this, when can you? Much of our problem with the subject of contentment comes from notions of what contentment really is. And much of our thinking about contentment is either incorrect or incomplete. Now, Melissa Kruger, she works for the Gospel Coalition, she wrote the following. Sometimes I create in my mind a misguided picture of contentment. I imagine a fairly carefree disposition of someone who has her life in balance. She's not overworked or bothered by much. She knows just the right thing to say. Her relationships are full of encouragement, mutual respect, and long conversations at cozy coffee shops. When tough times come, she's tougher, always able to handle difficulties with a gracious spirit. This is not my life. Fears arise, trying circumstances burden, and relationships disappoint. Sometimes I'm discouraged simply because I'm discouraged. And I look over the fence at Paul's contentment in profound wonder at his confidence to proclaim Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Of course, we forget that Paul wrote that from prison. Remember that if you pray for contentment, that God might put you in an ancient Roman prison. 
That's where Paul learned contentment. The Apostle Paul actually writes about contentment quite a bit, but it's normally couched in the language of trusting God. There's only a few places where he specifically talks about being content. One of them, Philippians 4, I just read to you. The other one is our passage for today, 1 Timothy 6. And here Paul talks about contentment applied in three different areas from three different perspectives. So we're going to start with the section that everyone thinks this whole passage is all about, but it's just one perspective, one area, where contentment can quickly disappear. And one of the main reasons it disappears is due to the influence of the false teachers. For those who've been here, false teachers is sort of behind the whole book of 1 Timothy. That's one of the things that Paul is addressing uh, through each and every chapter. So we start off with Paul's admonition to be content with your finances. Content with your finances. If you have the outline, that's the first blank there. So starting at verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So having given Timothy instructions about honoring the different people in the church as members of the family, the Apostle Paul comes to the false teachers whose poisonous influence is at the back of his mind throughout this letter. That is sort of the driving thing behind the letter of 1 Timothy. And Timothy has to deal with all these areas, all these subjects with false teachers. So the Apostle evaluates the false teachers in relation to the questions of truth, unity, motivation, and his criticism is that they uh, deviate from sound doctrine and they split the church and they love money. And once again, Paul implies that there is a standard of Christian belief, which he calls in verse 3, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So right off, we see there's two essential marks of sound teaching. It comes from Christ, and it promotes godliness. And if that's the norm, he says the false teachers have turned aside from it. In verse 10, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. <coughs> so in addition to being both arrogant and ignorant, the false teachers are divisive. It's noteworthy that Paul portrays their interest in controversy as unhealthy, while the apostolic teaching is sound or healthy. The false teacher's relish for profitless argument is almost pathological. 
controversies and quarrels uh, like this lead to a breakdown in relationships. And Paul lists uh, five results of these unhealthy controversies. There's envy, the resentment of what other people have and can do. There's dissension, a spirit of contention and competition. There's slander, which is the verbal abuse of others. There's evil suspicions, forgetting that fellowship is built on trust, and constant friction, an irritability that leads to conflict. And these evils characterize, verse 5, people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, which means that when people's minds are twisted, their relationships get twisted. Another symptom of the false teacher's depraved mind and loss of truth is that they're imagining that godliness is a means of gain, which says they don't really have an interest in godliness itself, but only if it proves to be profitable. Now, we're not told how uh, the false teachers were exploiting godliness for gain, but we do know that throughout the history of the human race, it has been regularly stained by attempts to commercialize religion. If we look back over verses 3 to 5, we know Paul has given us three practical tests by which to evaluate teaching. Is it compatible with the apostolic faith, that is, the scriptures? Does it tend to unite or divide the church? And does it promote godliness with contentment? So then what should be our attitude towards money and material things? And Paul replies, verse 8, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now, probably food and clothing should be extended to include shelter, because those are sort of the three things essential for life. But what Paul is defining is not the maximum permitted, but the minimum you need for contentment. He's not advocating asceticism, which is the abstinence from the things of the world, but contentment in place of materialism or covetousness. And so Paul traces the downfall of those who are covetous. It means they want what you have. Verse 9, it says, they fall into temptation, into a snare. They do to themselves what they pray God won't do to them. They lead themselves into temptation. Indeed, into multiple temptations like dishonesty and greed and theft. And then they fall into many senseless and harmful desires. Of course, greed itself is a desire, but it breeds other desires. And those further desires are senseless and harmful, and they plunge people into ruin and destruction. The metaphor pictures them sinking and drowning. And the irony is that those who have set their hearts on gain end up with loss. The loss of their integrity, eventually the loss of themselves. And in order to enforce this solemn warning, Paul quotes what seems to have been a current proverb, verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Now this verse is often misquoted. You will hear people say money is the root of all evil. That's not what Paul says. According to Paul, the problem is not money, but the love of money. It's not the one and only root of evil, but it is a root. And it's not the root of all evil in the singular, but the root of all evils in the plural. 
So you could think, what are the evils for which the love of money is a root cause or a major cause? And I think that would be a really long list. But Paul concentrates on two. He says, first, some have wandered away from the faith. Some either renounce greed and their commitment to the faith, or they make money, success, or the good life. They're idle, and they depart from the faith. And I think that's still happening. I had lunch with someone this week whose wife is doing that very thing. She's questioning the faith because she wants all that this world has to offer and doesn't appear to be willing to give any of that up. So she's beginning the process of deconstruction. We talked about this a few weeks ago. My prayer is that it will lead to a reconstruction of the faith and not a deconversion from the faith. But meanwhile, it's turning her family upside down. It's happening. The first is some have wandered from the faith. Second, he says they've pierced themselves with many pangs. I had to look up that word pangs. That's not a word we use very much anymore. Pangs are a sudden feeling of mental or emotional distress, like the pain that comes from grief or regret. So these griefs are not identified, but they could include worry, remorse, the pangs of a disregarded conscience, the discovery that materialism uh, can't satisfy uh, the soul, and it leaves you with nothing but despair. And the apostle's emphasis here is that covetousness is a self-destructive evil, whereas contentment is a beautiful and Christ-like virtue. Simply put, Paul is not for poverty over wealth. He's for contentment over and against covetousness. But it's not just about finances, because the passage doesn't end there. It's also about the need to be content with your faith. Look at verses 11 to 16, content with your faith. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. Then he goes into a doxology. We just sang a doxology. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. If you look back at chapter 1, you'll see that section tracks with what he said in chapter 1. Now, as a man of God, Timothy is supposed to be different from these divisive, money-hungry, false teachers. He has to take a firm stand against their ungodliness. And Paul develops a threefold appeal to him, ethical, doctrinal, and experiential. So the ethical appeal is that Timothy, as a man of God, must flee these things, the love of money and all the associated evils. And he has to pursue six qualities that are particularly appropriate as an alternative to covetousness. Negatively, we're to flee from evil, to run from it as far and as fast as we can. But positively, we're to pursue, and he says, 
Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. We're to seek and chase after those things. Now, to run from danger is common sense. But to run from issues we don't want to face or to run from responsibilities we don't want to have is escapism. Paul is saying we concentrate on running away from evil and things that can lead to evil. Virtually everyone around us, particularly in this county, runs after so many things that attract them. And to be honest, they attract us as well. Things like pleasure and fame and wealth and power and promotion. And yet here the Apostle Paul is begging us to concentrate on the pursuit of godliness, the pursuit of holiness. That's the ethical appeal. Then he argues for the doctrinal appeal. Look at verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Timothy's duty will involve fighting as well as fleeing, standing his ground as well as running away. Fighting is an unpleasant business. It's an undignified, bloody, painful, and dangerous. And sadly, fighting for truth and godliness can be just as difficult. We should all be sensitive enough to find fighting distasteful, even when it's necessary. Nevertheless, Paul says this is a good fight. It has to be fought, for God's truth is sacred and precious. Upholding the truths of the faith is essential for the health and growth of the church. Whenever truth is threatened by false teachers, to defend it is a painful necessity. So you have the ethical appeal, the doctrinal appeal, and then Paul presents the experiential appeal. Again, picking up verse 12. He says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, first, it struck me as strange that a leader of Timothy's stature, a leader in the church, would need to be exhorted to take hold of eternal life. Why did Paul tell him to take hold of something he already possessed? not totally clear, but the probable answer is it's possible to possess something without fully embracing it, without fully enjoying it. Although Timothy's already received eternal life, Paul is urging him to seize it, grasp it, lay hold of it, make it completely his own, enjoy it, and live it out to the fullest extent possible. Eternal life isn't just something we look forward to someday. No, eternal life is directly connected to having a personal relationship with Christ. John 17, 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Taking hold of the eternal life to which you are called means taking hold of Christ. Are you doing that? Look again at those qualities that we're to pursue back in verse 11. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Righteousness is found in Christ. Godliness comes from Christ. Faith is founded on Christ. Love is compelled by Christ. Steadfastness comes from having our faith in Christ tested, James 1.3, and is modeled for us by Christ, 2 Thessalonians 3.5. 
Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.23. And it is how Christ describes himself as gentle and lowly in Matthew 11.29. Taking hold of the eternal life to which you were called means taking hold of Christ. Pursuing the things of Christ that will make us more like Christ. That's what Paul wants for you and for me, to be more like Christ. Now, Paul does more than appeal to doctrine and ethics. He ends his appeal with this focus on the presence of God and the coming of Christ. He lives so much in the conscious presence of God. It was natural for him to write, verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And he reminds Timothy and us of important truths about each. He describes God as the one who gives life to all things. He's the giver of life and the one who, 1 Corinthians 1, will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, on the other hand, is described as the one who, in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. If you go back and look at that passage, you see that he was acknowledging he's indeed a king. Jesus' disciples never forgot the historical precedent that Christ set of bold testimony before anyone and everyone. Now, the second ground on which Paul bases his charge is the second coming of Christ. Paul is as certain about the event as he is as uncertain about its timing. Yet he knows this is too is in God's hands since he says he will display it at the proper time. Our confidence in God's perfect timing and our willingness to leave things in his hands arise from the kind of God we know him to be. And Paul goes on to unfold this in verses 15 and 16. It's probably drawing on the words of an early Christian hymn. He was the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him. Be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. To find doxology, but in it he affirms four truths about God. First, he's the only sovereign. Beyond all interference by earthly powers, no human rule can challenge his authority. Second, he's immortal. He's not subject to changes caused by time or space, death or dissolution. Human beings are immortal in the sense that we will survive death, but only God has life in and of himself. Third, God is unapproachable beyond the reach of sinful people. Darkness in any shape or form, whether falsehood or evil, cannot enter his presence, let alone overcome him. And fourth, he's invisible, beyond human sight and human apprehension. We can come to know him only as he's been pleased to make himself known to us. Otherwise, he is wholly other, above and beyond us. And when he writes about God, Paul naturally breaks into doxology to this great God, invincible, immortal, inaccessible, invisible, the honor and eternal dominion. In the presence of God and in the anticipation of Christ's appearing, Paul has given Timothy this solemn charge. And it's good in our post-Christian age to have truth and godliness and eternal life set before us as goals to pursue. They also constitute a healthy balance. Some fight for truth but neglect godliness. Others pursue godliness but have no concern for the truth. 
Still others regard, uh, disregard both doctrine and ethics in search for a religious experience. And Paul is saying that the man or woman of God needs all three, needs to pursue all three. Contentment involves our money and material things. Contentment involves the pursuit of truth and godliness and taking hold of the eternal life in light of the presence of God and the appearing of Christ, all of which will lead to lives of holiness and faithfulness. Finally, Paul counsels Timothy to be content with your foundation. Content with your foundation, starting at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Notice that Paul doesn't direct the rich to divest themselves of their riches. Instead, he gives them both positive and negative instructions. First, he warns the rich of the dangers of wealth, and then he lays down obligations. So the danger to which they're exposed is, first of all, pride. Wealth can easily lead to selfishness and can make people feel self-important. Second, wealth exposes the rich to a sense of false security. The proper object of our trust is not a thing but a person. It's not uncertain wealth, but the end of verse 17, God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God is our generous creator who wants us to appreciate the good gifts of his creation. The dangers then to which the rich are exposed are a false pride, looking down on people less fortunate than themselves, and a false security, trusting in the gift instead of the giver. In this way, wealth can spoil two of life's most important relationships. It causes us to forget God and despise our neighbor. And yet the commandment says we're to love God and love our neighbor. However, Timothy isn't just going to warn the rich of the perils they face. He's also alerting them to the duties they have. And basically he's saying you need to add one kind of wealth to another. Verse 18, he says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Why does he say that? Wealth can make people lazy. But since God is such a generous giver, his people should be generous too. Not only in imitation of his generosity, but also because of the colossal needs of the world around us. Thus, verse 19, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life, which begins now and ends in heaven. So bringing together Paul's negative instructions and his positive instructions. They're not to be proud and despise the poor, but to do good and be generous. They're not to fix their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God who is the giver and on the most valuable of all his gifts, the treasure of eternal life. And then in his final charge to Timothy in the last two verses, Paul goes back to the false teachers. Their damaging activity has been the background of this whole letter. And he contrasts two sets of teaching. Sound words versus false teaching. And two possible attitudes guarding the good deposit of faith 
versus swerving away from the faith. And Paul calls his teaching the deposit entrusted to you. Literally, it's a deposit of something valuable that's left with somebody for, faith, for safekeeping. And he says, the valuable thing that I'm leaving with you is the good teaching, the sound words, the sound doctrine. It's the faith. And Timothy is to guard it, preserving it and passing it on to others without diluting it or distorting it. And Paul adds that those who have professed what is falsely called knowledge have swerved from the faith. Now Paul knows what the, that the church in Ephesus, I mean just like us, would not be able to reject error and fight for truth in their own strength. He knows that to run from evil and pursue godliness, to renounce covetousness and to cultivate contentment, and to remain faithful to the end is only going to happen by the grace of God. And yet, out of all of this, that's the easiest thing to forget. The grace of God. We forget the grace of God. When I was in the Army a long, long time ago, I had an assignment serving as an aide-de-camp for a brigadier general. Uh, whatever he did, I did. Wherever he went, I went. And whenever there was a big storm, he'd yell out, get the Jeep. See, most of the time we went around in a nice staff car. But when it was pouring buckets out, he would insist on going out to visit the troops in the field, which meant driving out to the middle of nowhere in this old beat-up Jeep, only to find soldiers in leaky tents or huddle up in foxholes with six inches of water at the bottom, or out on patrol learning what it means to be miserable. And one time I asked him uh, why he insisted on going to the field every single time the weather turned bad. And he just pointed to a poster on the back of his office door. And it was a poster of a soldier, and underneath it were printed the words, what have you done for me lately? And far too often, and for far too many of us, that's how we approach God. Not pursuing godliness, not learning contentment, but tired, frustrated, miserable, wondering, what have you done for me lately? And to see that, and to really understand that, we have to go back to a verse I skipped over. Go back to verses 6 and 7. But godliness with contentment is great gain. We've talked about that. Verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. What's Paul saying there? Most commentators think that Paul is basically paraphrasing Job. You remember Job? He had this horrible, tragic series of events in which all of his children were killed and all of his wealth was taken away. And in the face of incredible suffering, Job stands up and there's this expression of unbelievable poise in the face of a huge amount of suffering. And if, if you remember, he says, Job chapter 1, verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what Paul's talking about. Nakedness in the Bible is a lot more than not wearing clothes. Nakedness is vulnerability. 
Nakedness is defensive, uh, defenselessness. And here's what he's saying. He's saying you're naked. You come in naked, a little baby is utterly defenseless, utterly helpless, completely vulnerable. And as they're dying, an old person is every bit as helpless and defenseless. And nothing can change that. So while we're here in the middle of those two uh, things, why are we running around trying to get worldly goods? Why are we trying to get investments? Why are we spending so much time being successful? Because we're trying to cover the nakedness. It's just our version of fig leaves. We're trying to cover that sense of vulnerability. We're trying to say, I want to be in control. I don't want to feel defenseless. I don't want to feel vulnerable. I don't want to feel naked. So we cover ourselves. And what Paul is saying, what the Bible is saying, is that you can't. We're all naked at the beginning and the end. Job complained in the book of Job that he didn't live a bad life. So why was he suffering? He says, I'm an innocent sufferer. But from the perspective of the New Testament, we know there's only one innocent sufferer. There's only one real Job, the greater Job, who's Jesus Christ, the one who deserved no suffering at all, who was stripped naked on the cross. He became absolutely vulnerable and defenseless. And he agonized on the cross. Matthew 27, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he experience nakedness? Why did he experience that vulnerability? So that you could be clothed, you could be safe, so that you could have peace, so you could be content, so you could take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, so that you could take hold of Christ. The godliness and safety and contentment that comes from receiving the salvation of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ is all given for you. Your adoption, your sanctification, your justification, that's the real wealth that can never be taken away. And that's what he has done for you lately. Think about that and then thank God for that. Do that now and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess there are times when we fail to see grace in our lives. There are times when we fail to understand and obey the sound words found in your word. There are times when we would much rather pursue selfishness and the things of this world than to pursue godliness and the things of Christ. So please forgive us. Our sins are too many to list. And most of all, we thank you for the one who's given himself for the salvation of our souls. Thank you for the one who experienced naked vulnerability so we could be clothed. Thank you for the one whose blood was shed so we could be forgiven. Thank you for the one who gave up everything so we could have what really matters, the eternal life to which we were called. Help us through these words from Paul to Timothy to take hold of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.